Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through The Lawyerist Lab. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Zach Glazer. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 349 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. In today's episode, I'm talking with Sandra Sutcher about the importance of building trust to grow and sustain your business. Today's podcast is brought to you by Lex Reception, Text Expander, Latera, and Rankings.io. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. So stay tuned and we'll tell you more about them later on. So Zach, in today's episode, I'm talking with Sandra about trust, and I think where everyone's mind immediately goes is, oh, great, here come the trust falls in the woods. Luckily, that is <laughs> not at all what we ended up talking about. Actually, it ended up being a super fascinating conversation. I'm excited for everyone to hear. But I was thinking about this, and, and you and I have been working together now for, I think, around 15 months, like, mm-hmm. believe it or not, right? Yeah, yeah. And yet we have not met in person. No, no. You you have no idea that I'm, you know, six eight. And uh yeah, I I, I haven't met anybody at lawyerist in person. And, and by the way, I'm not six eight. Uh, nowhere near six eight. Um and but but I I haven't met anybody at lawyerist uh, um in person. Right. And, and not on purpose. It's because of the pandemic, people, but we're right, we're excited. Right. Like that day is coming. We're all gonna be in the same room soon. Um but I was thinking about this and I was wondering like how if you if you have a thoughts or comparison around, you know, how you think about your experience and, and the trust level that you have with our team, knowing that you've never actually met us in person. Right. I, you know, this makes me think of kind of in-person court experiences a lot of times, you know, a lot of people like to do depositions or, um, you know, they like to make sure they're asking questions in person because they feel like there's a connection. They feel like there's something about being physically located near somebody. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the case with building trust, building a rapport, um, starting to, you know, building a relationship with somebody. Um, but you do have to be deliberate. You do have to be thoughtful about how you do this. You, you can't just kind of skirt over the fact that you're not getting into kind of a, a deep level um, connection with somebody just because you're, you're next to them. You know, um, I think we've all had plenty of friends that we've, that we've been in the same physical location with um, for, for an extended period of time. And at the end of the day, you don't really have a, a real connection. You don't really have a lot of trust with them because you didn't deliberately get into, you know, what, what things are, are of interest to you? What, you know, what, what are the names of your kids? Why, why did you name your, your child that? And, and things like that. I think you can have those sorts of conversations and connections with people online very easily. Yeah, I mean, it occurs to me that if we're just hanging out, having a beverage, it's easy to just kind of banter 
right? Banter about mm-hmm. the environment we're in or what's happening or I don't know. I've never really thought about it, but it, it occurs to me like conversations just sort of naturally happen. And when mm-hmm. we're online, like we have our team lunches, um, you know, we play games and, and we do things, but we also have intentional questions. Like we have to make an effort to get to know each other and find out about each other's lives because we don't have those opportunities to just have coffee banter about, you know, whatever it is. Right. And I think that's, instead of thinking about that as a disadvantage to being virtual, I think it's an an advantage. It's, you know, me being in the tech area, the legal tech area and the reviews and the, the, you know, things of that nature at Lawyerist, I would probably in a physical location tend toward being around certain people more, but we don't have that here, you know, and I feel way more connected with um, people that are not in my quote unquote department than I, I think I would if we were in an office building together. Yeah. And, you know, I hear so many people say, oh, I just want my team to be in the office with me. And now as I'm thinking about this and in com- in the conversation I had with Sandra, I think it's because they, they think that that's where that, that trust is easier to build, right? Like, right. oh, I can, I can see what they're doing. I know what they're doing. And so I can, I can more easily trust them. Um, I think being remote takes more effort. Like you have to be a little bit more intentional, but you still can build that trust. It just happens differently. Right, right. And, and I think that when you are intentional about it, which to be clear, I think you have to be intentional about it when you're in person as well. We just don't. Yeah, I think we think right. we are. Yeah. We we think we're building trust because we're we're physically in front of somebody. We can see their facial reactions. We can see their body language, and you know pe- people have developed ways of communicating that way. You know, communicating that, and it's whether good, bad, and different, right, wrong, but we still need to be deliberate about these things when we when we're in person we still need to have um you know community time or time that that people can get to know each other yeah so i guess the takeaway today is if you're whether you're live or remote you have to be intentional in thinking about the relationships that you have with your team. And Sandra's going to talk about this in a minute and, and why we have to start internally to build trust before we can build trust with our clients. And I think it's those intentional interactions that we have with, with team members. Um, and it could be as simple as some questions to get to know them. Like it doesn't have to be hard. It just needs, you just need to do it. No, what, what's your favorite color? What's your favorite food? I think people learned that I'm obsessed with nachos, probably day negative one, um, yes. because we asked that question. Yeah. And then we sent you nacho things for your and, birthday. And then, yeah, I, I got, I <laughs> got some socks. of the greatest gifts ever. Is, yeah, nacho socks and nacho yeah. books. And I seriously, I really like nachos. So it was great. Hey y'all, it's Zach, the legal tech advisor here at Lawyerist, and today I'm joined by Bree Swanson, the operations leader at Lex Reception. Now, Lex Reception, as you can imagine, is a virtual receptionist service for the legal field. Bree, thanks for joining me today. Hey Zach, uh, super glad to be here. So I guess my first question is pretty basic, but really important. I think a lot of people don't know when 
they need a virtual receptionist? How do they know when they need to outsource their, their receptionist? Well, I'm going to pull a Simon Sinek on you and say that we should start with the why. Start with the goal, start with the problem to solve um, if there is one. And some of the things that I like to think through is, is this something that you're even familiar with? Do any of your attorney friends have this or have you called potentially competitors and like maybe they have something set up similar? Um, so if this is on your radar at all, I would wonder, are you genuinely missing calls and mm -hmm. potential new clients, opportunities? If so, like, absolutely, let's have a conversation. But also something that we hear a lot of, and it might be very valid for you, is are you able to put down your phone? Have you mm -hmm. been thinking about a vacation? You're spending more time with your kiddos, those type of things where maybe the phone is ringing more. So those are all kind of good things to think around while looking at the next step or potentially doing some research on specific legal answering service. As I would recommend, um, if you are a lawyer, assuming everyone is um, here, at least in that field, look at a legal specific, right? The smaller, I always recommend like, you know, smaller if possible, but the ones that actually do like legal training and those type of things. Mm -hmm. And if I'm looking to kind of set my phone down, I can make this look how I want to make it look. We can expand, we can contract, we can add services and whatnot in order to, to get a vacation or a day off or a little bit of breathing room, right? Absolutely. And those are, I hear so many stories. Those are my favorite ones. Of course, I love the ones that's like, Lex team is great and the service mm -hmm. rocks, of course, but it's really the ones that stick with me the most are the personal stories that we hear from our clients of, I was able to take my first vacation. I was able right. to volunteer as my kiddo's soccer coach. So there's one specifically that always sticks out to me. And our client was about to go on maternity leave and she let us know. Um, and we worked with her to basically expand the services. And when she left, she sent us an email after she had the baby and just with so much gratitude that she was able to be worry-free. That was her word that will always stick with me and not worry about like the business and the phone calls when you're in such a special like moment in your life. So that mm -hmm. was a really big win for her and like for us. Right, right. Well, and so let's say people know they need a virtual assistant, virtual receptionist. They need the services or they need to ramp up. What are the things they need to be thinking about in engaging somebody like you guys? I have a couple of tips that are really, really foundational. If that's the point that you're at, even before right. you start researching, try to figure out what your call volume is or a guesstimate. There's mm -hmm. a couple of ways. If you are just using your cell phone, which is really common at this point, oh, yeah. you can just count the amount of missed calls in your historical like call log, maybe over the last week, and then multiply that to get the amount for the month. And that's a great baseline. Also, a lot of attorneys have voice over IP, they've got Ring Central, they've got kind of a system. A lot of times those have like online dashboards that you can go in and kind of get those numbers. So that's one of the tips that I think is really easy to do once you know kind of step A, step B, and then you're ready to really talk about like what plan makes sense and kind of engage a service. 
Right. Well, and it's not just about the phone calls that that you miss. It can also be the phone calls that you'd like to unload on the, onto somebody else, for lack of a better way of saying it, right? And so what do they need to do next? So they, they know they need the service. They know about how much they need it. What's the next step? So one thing that's really important to think about is logistically the phone number. So what do you have mm -hmm. on your website? What do you have on your business cards? Is that your cell phone number? So kind of just think about that phone number. Most of the call phone providers have call forwarding. So mm -hmm. you can really customize when you have a service or someone else taking those calls. So that's easy, but also think about does a new number at this point make sense? You mm -hmm. might be going to the next chapter. You're talking about an answering service. Does it make sense to go ahead and separate those out? Tell friends and family, call a new number. So there's different ways, but definitely be thinking about the actual phone number itself. Mm -hmm. And so if somebody needs a, a new number, a service like Lex Reception can provide that new business number, or we can just forward that number to the new number as they go. And so they can kind of tweak this and, and make this their own. It, it's pretty adjustable and customizable, right? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the Lex service comes with a number, all of the, I would imagine all of the answering services, um, the legal services would, if not, numbers are either free or super cheap to get. Um, mm -hmm. If that was the direction, there's a lot of providers out there that provide just numbers. You can get vanity numbers if you want it to spell your firm name or something along those lines. So there's a lot of options. The number piece is the easy piece ish. Once you wrap your mind around it. Right. Um, so these are a couple of pointers. Right. Yeah. That's a logistical issue, not a technology issue. Right. Well, Bree, thank you for, for being with us. Obviously, if people want to know more about Lex Reception, how they can start using the service or add to their services, they can visit LexReception.com forward slash lawyerist for more. And again, Bree, thanks for being with me. Thanks, Zach. It's been a lot of fun. Well, hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Sandra Sutcher. I'm a professor of management practice at Harvard Business School. And I'm so glad for this opportunity to be able to talk with you guys, lawyers all, uh, business owners, uh, about uh, some of what I found out about trust. Yeah, Sandra, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have this conversation because you literally wrote a book about trust. <laughs> and so the let me make sure I get the name of the book right. Well, you tell us because I've lost my notes. So the name of the book is The Power of Trust, How Companies Build It, Lose It, regain it. Yes. Perfect. And so I guess just to start us off, it's probably important that we kind of define, you know, lawyers, we like definitions. So I thought it'd be helpful to define trust because I think you would say it's not just a feeling. I'm so glad you asked that question. So here's a definition of trust that uh, is both consistent with what's in the academic literature on trust and also uh, corresponds with what we found in our research at companies. And the definition is that trust is a willingness to be vulnerable to the actions and intentions of others. Mm. So all those aspects are important. The big idea is that trust is a relationship of vulnerability. Yeah. So when I trust, I am relying on the other person or organization to do things that I can't do for myself or that I need them to do for various reasons. And because I'm trusting, I am vulnerable to the actions that they do and also to their intentions toward me. 
as to whether they have a sense about what's in my interest as well as their own. And so trust is in this sense, it's different from simple dependence. You know, so you can rely on me to send you an outline of the things I'm going to talk about for the podcast today. And if I don't do that, you'll be disappointed. But in trust, you would feel betrayed. Yeah. It's like I was really counting on this because without that outline, here's the following things that are bad that are going to happen to our podcast. And so trust is actually that moment of vulnerability. And it's really useful for lawyers, business people to think about that because we don't think of our stakeholders as being vulnerable to us. We don't usually think about ourselves as having power over them. But in fact, that is the nature of the vulnerability that comes with trust. Uh, Is it seated in the power that the other party has? Yeah. When I was reading your works, you talk about this idea of, of an intentional choice. And that really resonated with me because I think we just assume trust is this thing that happens. And what you say is, no, it's actually a choice. And there are things we can do as business owners to actually increase the amount of trust that our stakeholders have in what we're doing. Absolutely. And, and, and I think that is the, the key idea that it's intentional on both sides. Intentional on the side of the person who's doing the trusting, and therefore intentional on the part of the person who's being trusted, that there are things you can do to make that relationship of vulnerability better and more positive for the person who's trusting you. Yeah. Before we dive too much into that relationship, people like the stats. And so I found it so interesting that you guys actually looked at instances. I think you looked at NBA teams, for example, and who had high trust and who had low trust in their coaching. And there were tangible results. And so I wonder if you would just share some of the, that evidence of how important trust really is. Yeah. So and, and let me talk about two studies for sure. The first is this wonderful study of 30 NCAA basketball teams. The researchers, a guy named Kurt Dirks, who studies trust, he wanted to figure out uh, how important was it that people trusted who were basketball players and what did they trust in? And what he found was that the most important element of trust was trust in the coach. Mm. Trust in the coach mattered more than trust in my teammates. And it had a direct relationship to how many wins I made as a team or how few I made. And so the the team with the highest level of trust in the coach actually won the championship, certainly won most of its games. And the team that had the least amount of trust won just 10% of its games. Yeah. So this relationship of trust uh, is really powerful uh, in a performance sense you know, that it really does make us better uh, if we can act, act on trust. You know, that also translated into economic returns. So there's a second study that we cite, uh, and it's a study of uh, 6,500 employees in holiday inns in the United States and Canada. The researchers were studying what mattered uh, in terms of people's relationship to their managers. And they studied a number of different attributes of a way that a manager could be good. And what they found was that the increase in trust yielded a point, I'm going to get this right, a one-eighth point increase in a 1.5 scale in the manager. And what that yielded uh, was a $250,000 revenue boost Ah. in the hotels where that was present. 
And what they found was of a whole variety of things that they looked at in terms of managerial effectiveness, trust in the manager was the only one that actually had this revenue and therefore profit effect on what was going on. So from a business standpoint, there are many reasons why trust is important, and we know that it is. It's not just our intuition. There's data that says that it is. Right. And so then now that we know trust is is this relationship of vulnerability, that it's, I think you would agree, it's a skill or maybe a set of skills that we can learn and improve. And so how do we even start to do that? Because now I'm like, yes, I'm in. What do I do to build trust? <laughs> So there are two elements uh, that I would suggest. The first is understanding a little bit more about how trust works. And then I'll talk about the basis on which people trust. Because if you understand that, then you can figure out what you're going to do about it. Perfect. So, but what we found uh, in looking at many companies and, and how whether or not they're trusted uh, is that there's a pattern to trust. So in addition to being this relationship of vulnerability, trust is also actually a limited relationship. So if I'm getting a COVID vaccine, what I'm trusting at that moment is that the vaccine works. I've been told about any secondary effects I need to worry about, but that's all I'm counting on that vaccine to do. Mm -hmm. I'm not looking at that vaccine to protect me against any other kinds of infection. And so in that sense, and that's true, trust is earned and lost in individual interactions that are quite specific and focused. Now, as business people, that's actually sort of reassuring, right? <laughs> because if I'm always building and or losing trust, at least I know when it's happening. And it's happening in discrete interactions that I have with people who are trusting me. So that's one important principle of trust. And another one uh, is that trust is in the eye of the beholder. Mm. So this is kind of in a funny way obvious. You know, so again, if you think about vaccines, and the debate going on in our country about their efficacy. It's very clear that there's no one standard that everyone can agree to as a reason why they trust. Right. And from a business standpoint, that means that you should expect diversity in the people's opinions who trust you, that it's not going to be on one thing and people aren't going to agree on that. And it's a kind of a stakeholder by stakeholder issue that you need to manage on an individual basis. So it's not like being one and done, I'm great at this stuff. You know, it, it, it's like, how does someone, this person versus that person view me and my work? And the last thing for people who have a practice or a business that's large enough to have an employee beyond just themselves is that we found that trust is built from the inside out. So we usually think about trust as kind of reputation management, outside in sort of an activity. But in fact, when you think about how dependent we are on employees to actually do the things that cause people to either trust us or not, what we found is it's really pretty hard to be trusted by people outside the organization if you're not trusted inside the organization by the people who work there. And again, that's pretty clear guidance for managers of all kinds, whatever profession, about how important it is to be creating an environment where people feel that they can trust you as a boss and as a person who's managing your business in a certain way. Yeah. You say all that and it resonates and it makes sense, right? But I just don't think we always think about it in those terms so that we can be intentional about those relationships and about those communications, because like I hear you say that around the vaccines and individual choice, and it, it makes me think as a business owner, 
this is where we have to tread lightly, right? Like if I as a company just come out and say, well, this is my policy, but I might not be attending to each individual team member and their feelings around it. Am I getting it? Is that consistent yeah. with what you're finding? Yeah. So uh, a point of view I think is helpful, particularly with COVID, is I, I think at this point, almost all managers need to be having individual conversations with the people who work in their organization. And the conversation goes something like, how has COVID been for you, right? Just to read you into somebody else's experience of the pandemic and what's happened to them. You can then ask them, you know, how have we done in managing this over the last period of time? Because everyone's been making choices about things they do and don't do. And it'd be helpful to hear what other people think about those. And the last is, you know, is there one thing, one challenge that you're facing with respect to COVID that we could help you with. And so, you know, this is a very practical kind of hands-on conversation. And I think it would really complement the work that bigger organizations are doing in surveys, because I worry that for something as personal and idiosyncratic as COVID, that surveys actually don't sort of tell us the story we need to know if we're managing a company. Yeah. And so it really is getting down at that individual level. Yeah. And I, I had read you you're writing around trust starts from within. And that too resonated because I often teach law firm owners in the beginning when it's just them, which is often the case, right? They don't have a team yet. And they're so focused on building their clients. And so all of their effort goes into client services. But then as they grow and they start adding a team, I remind them that there's a shift that happens and suddenly their focus becomes on their team and the team's focus is on the clients. Exactly. And what I hear, I think you saying too, is like now that person is focused on their team. That's where they need to start these relationships and building the trust because those team members will never be able to deliver the client services you want right. if there's not trust coming within first. Correct. Yeah. No, I, I think that's exactly right. And so are there tips or strategies or, or thoughts around as the team leader? things that we know we should just be doing or being more mindful about? So there are four, uh, sorry for this number because it's bigger than one, <laughs> yeah. uh, dimensions uh, on which we believe that people trust. At least our research shows this. And the first is just an assessment of whether or not you're competent. Mm. Right. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Competence <laughs> is the foundation of trust, right? You know, yeah. whether it's in a business or an individual, if you can't do the thing that you're supposed to do, then I, I just won't trust you. And you know, it's kind of like game over. So this is the foundation. But trust in, in competence is it's like not enough. And so let me draw on a business uh, comparison here and think about sort of some of the dark days of Uber. So Uber, you know, transformed yeah. the landscape of ride hailing uh, and created this technological wonder of being able to call someone, they show up, they take you someplace, no money changes hands, you know when they're coming, you know when they've left you, it's a thing of beauty. And yet, like in 2018, about 200,000 people deleted the Uber app. And so if competence were enough that wouldn't have happened. right? And so what were they worried about? So the first thing they're worried about, and this goes at the individual level too, is just what were Uber's motives? You know, whose interest did Uber care about? Uh, and so here I'm going to tell a law story about a case that was brought. Uh, so in 2013, uh, there was an Uber employee 
who struck a family of four in San Francisco. They killed a little six-year-old girl, injured the mother and brother. The family went to court and what Uber claimed, uh, and I apologize because I know I'm talking to a group of lawyers, okay. is that at the time of the accident, the driver really wasn't an Uber employee. Uh, the driver hadn't yet accepted his next passenger, and there was no passenger in his car. So as we know, Uber and other kinds of businesses uh, have tried to sort of work this issue of whether or not someone is an employee or not. So if you step back and say, well, whose interests is Uber protecting at that moment? Right? It's very clear that this is a company that pretty much only cares about whether or not it's going to limit its financial liability in this case. And it kind of throws its own driver literally under the bus in terms of saying, not my employee, you know, go after this person individually. Right. And obviously doesn't take any responsibility for the family and the harm they've created. So when people say, I question someone's motives, that's that terrain of sort of whose interest do they prioritize and do they take anybody's interest into account beyond their own? And to what extent can I count on them to take my interest into account? So motives matter. Uh, we know that. Uh, and so that's something that as a boss you can think about, which is how do people judge your actions by what they see, by whose interest you're prioritizing? Yes. So that's one uh, dimension beyond competence. Another one is, is means, which is how you go about accomplishing your goals, right? And so there's sort of the why I'm doing what I'm doing. Those are my motives. And then there's the, the how I go about it. And so here, fairness really matters. So uh, another Uber story from those dark days. Uh, between 2013 and 2015, Uber asked its drivers to book and then cancel 5,000 rides on Lyft. It's a major competitor. Right. <laughs> this was an organized effort to try to disrupt the operations of a competitor in a business where showing up on time is the capability that people are looking for. Right. I didn't know that. That's fascinating. <laughs> so, so this is an example of unfairness is something of the kind of thing that people and there are other Uber from that time practices that looked like that, where it was just clearly unfair competition. So people were going to be looking at your organization as to whether or not you treat them fairly. And they'll have their own views. And in the book, we actually detail there are different kinds of fairness, four of them, and what they look like. So, so, so we've got competence, have to be good at that. Uh, we've got motives, means. And then the last area is impact. So this is the kind of, I can see it with my own eyes. I don't care what you tell me about it, in particular, if it's unintended you still did it. So right. it's a result of company actions. And so uh, here the Uber story is about a woman uh, named Susan Fowler, who was a reliability engineer. Uh, and she worked at Uber for a couple of years. She left in 2017 and put out a blog post about how difficult it was as an environment for a woman to work. And she recounted numerous things about her experience there and that of other people. But the impact story that I want to tell is that when Susan Fowler started, women engineers were 25% of the total population of engineers in her division. Two years later, they were 6%. Wow. So Uber didn't set out to be unfair. They didn't say, how can I make this a miserable environment for women to work in? But the impact of their action shows that, in fact, that's what they did. And so that's why, and people take those and think about climate change any area where you know that companies have actions 
that result in effects on others. And so this has got to be, this is one of the domains in which you're trusted as well. So this is kind of a cookbook, you know, that says if I'm trying to work well with people in my organization, first I have to be competent, then I have to show them that I care about them and not just about myself. I have to be fair to them. And I have to really take their perspective about the impacts that matter. Yeah. So it's not, it's not as much sort of what I think matters. It's like, what do they think is an impact and a result of company actions? And that's what they're going to be judging you on. So if you're a manager, you know, this is a way of at least being able to parse the question of how you build trust and start to look at various components, each one of which you can work on. Yeah, no, it's helpful to have that framework because again, I kind of start like where we started is this idea of trust. It's just a feeling. And what you've really done is broken it down for us and said, okay, here are some things that you should be thinking about as you're making decisions, as you're building your company, because it's so easy to just think about profitability or what's right in front of you, but you really need to take a step back and you owe it to your stakeholders and to yourself in the long run, if you want to do the right thing and think about these larger implications. So, so helpful. We need to take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, I want to hit on what we do when things go wrong, because I know you have good advice there. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you very much. Support for today's episode comes from Text Expander. Minimize effort, maximize productivity with Text Expander. Text Expander helps you work faster and smarter so you can focus your time on your most important work. Drive faster results in three steps. One, create. Make snippets of text for support responses, sales outreach, or even common emails to save them in Text Expander. Two, Trigger. Just type a few characters and watch the snippet automatically expand your text. You can add fill-in-the-blank or more complex functionality to customize your message. Three, share. Share snippets across your organization. Your team can customize and insert the text in any app on Mac, Windows, Chrome, or iOS with a few keystrokes. Are you a startup looking to scale? Text Expander is here to help you on your journey. Check out Text Expander for Startups, a program that's specifically designed to help startup teams communicate more consistently, accurately, and efficiently. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Visit textexpander.com forward slash podcast to learn more about Text Expander. Support for today's episode comes from Rankings.io, helping hyper-competitive personal injury attorneys dominate first-page rankings through search engine optimization to become better recognized as the leading law firm in your metro. Rankings is solely focused on SEO for personal injury law firms. You'll work with an entire team of SEO specialists dedicated to helping clients dominate search results with unparalleled industry expertise. Rankings focuses on proof, not promises, by delivering results and never leaving their clients in the dark. You will receive monthly reports that give a full snapshot of where you stand as you watch your firm climb to the first page of Google and generate high-value leads. Most importantly, you'll be one of an elite few. Rankings' unrelenting conviction to be the best drives them to do everything to ensure the personal injury law firms working with them are dominating the search results. To see if you're a fit, visit rankings.io forward slash lawyerist to get started. Today's podcast is brought to you by Latera. Delivering high quality work on time and on budget is what matters most to your clients. Latera helps law firms maximize client retention rates, increase profit margins, and enhance lawyer happiness. In short, they simplify complex workflows by connecting legal teams to the data they need every day. The result? End user happiness. 
Most of the world's largest law firms, boutique firms, and corporate legal departments trust Latera to help their legal teams manage all of their documents, deals, cases, and data. Are you ready to join them? Latera is excited to hear about the challenges facing your organization, show you their software in action, or simply discuss whatever else might be top of mind. Get a demo with their document experts today by visiting latera.com forward slash lawyerist. All right. I'm back with Sandra. We're talking about trust and you've just taught us great things to think about in building trust, but we know from time to time things aren't going to go as planned. Maybe mistakes happen or maybe it's intentional, right? Like there's all kinds of things that you discuss in the book, but you came up with a great framework for us to think about what to do when things go wrong. And I think, well, let's just start there. Let me, let me start there with what's that framework look like? Something's gone wrong. Now what? Right. So one of the things that was interesting was finding out that building trust is one process and recovering trust is another. So this is a piece of work unto itself, and you have to actually follow a different kind of a rubric for what matters. So it's a three-step process. It's pretty straightforward. The first is you have to acknowledge responsibility and apologize. Yes. That's a hard one, right? Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about the importance of apologies shortly, and because there's even a framework for that, and there's research on what makes an apology more effective versus less effective. So, but the first step of the recovery framework is to acknowledge and apologize. The second step is to hold people accountable. And this is hard. You know, this is hard inside an organization. Smaller it gets, the harder and more personal it is. But, you know, organizations are not democracies, and people expect the person more or less at the top to hold themselves accountable for a mistake that their firm has made. And then the third step is to actually do some work on fixing the underlying cause of the problem. Some things are just accidents. They happen, and you can just sort of say, we're going to figure out, was this such a rare event? It will never occur again. Most of the time, there are some underlying things that you need to worry about. And it's like doing a root cause analysis in any other kind of business where you step back and you say, okay, what was the trust breach here and what led to it? So there's an example um, from PwC. Yes. Yeah, which one year mixed up the Oscar envelopes. And if you're PwC, which by the way, at the moment, at that point had a hashtag, which was probably wrong card. Uh, So you really don't want to be PwC at this moment. Literally the next morning, they had an apology up and the apology said something to the effect of, oh my gosh, we're so sorry. Here are apologies to this person versus that person. Thank you so much for the gracious way that you guys handled this. So there was that whole part of it. Then there was an explanation. And what they said was, well, we figured out, we found out that people were actually on their cell phones when they were supposed to be reading the card. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so they made a mistake. And then there's an offer of repair. And the offer of repair is we're going to figure out how to make sure that this never happens again. Actually, what they ended up doing was a a multi-step process. One is that you can't, of course, bring your cell phone on stage. They then expected everybody to memorize all the winners so that people would actually be able to recognize if they've got the wrong card. Right. They basically then were very transparent about these changes in the process. And people said, okay, I get it. They made a mistake and we can move on. So that's a really good example of a very visible mistake. 
and the fact that uh, in the, I, I actually know the CEO who uh, was in charge at that time and how quickly they were able to take responsibility for it and how clear they were about how they were. So what they did was kind of textbook trust recovery. And uh, it does also talk about sort of this elements of what makes for a good apology. Yeah. Say more about that. Yes. Yeah, so, so a good apology has uh, also has three steps. Uh, step one is that I acknowledge harm and I say, I'm sorry for it. So it's not enough to just say mistakes were made. Right. That word, I'm sorry, is actually really important here. Right. Because people want to know that you are sorry yeah. for some kind of a harm that you created. And that by being able to say that, they get reassured that they can trust you again because you actually think it was a big deal and so did they. So that's the first thing. The second thing is an explanation. So people really do want to hear your understanding of how this went wrong. And that's important because, again, it's a way of demonstrating that you have your arms around the problem and that you have the capability to actually analyze the nature of the breach. And the third is this offer of repair. Uh, you really do have to say, and here's what we're going to do to try to make sure that this doesn't happen again with concrete actions of the kind I just described. Yeah. So you can see there's a lot of similarity between those two processes. What's different about the overall trust recovery process is this notion of holding someone accountable and also the root cause analysis in terms of longer term. How do you understand how this went wrong? Yeah, I think because we have an audience of lawyers it's interesting, and I know that you touch on this too, the lawyers in us, right? Like we're probably all listening to this right now and we're like, yeah, yeah, apologize. But but I know there's some lawyers out there that are screaming at their whatever they're listening to on right now saying, apologize, wait, if there's a lawsuit coming, that is the last thing we want our clients to do. We want to shut that down and handle it in the courts because we know everything's going to be used against us one day in court. And so you know, how do you start to counsel people and think about this difference of exposing yourself to liability and building that trust back as a corporate entity when you've done something to really lose it? Right. So, so you just said it really well. These are two goals and they're different. Mm -hmm. One goal is to limit liability. And, you know, look, I'm a business person. I was in business for 20 years before I went to Harvard Business School. So, uh, so you know, I have direct and personal experience with this. So it's important to do that. But recovering lost trust is a different kind of an animal. This is really a different goal, and it requires a different kind of an emphasis. So I, I think that from a standpoint of a lawyer, you're an advisor, fiduciary duties to the corporation and to your clients. And I think the question is how you can help them navigate the tension between those two goals. And how you can help them think about how big a problem is this trust breach and how extensive will it be to try to recover from it? So, you know, I've studied a lot of corporate apologies, CEO apologies, and some of them are so unpersuasive because it's very clear that they were written by a lawyer to try to limit liability. Right. And so I think that, you know, this is an arena of the law that I, I think particularly because you actually probably have good and close working relationships with your clients, that being able to talk about these two goals and what to do about them is something that is a terrain that I guess I would encourage people to walk directly into. 
And to really say that part of my goal is obviously to help limit liability, but I also need to be sensitive to the sustainability of my corporate client. Yes. One of the things we preach around here is the idea of having a client-centered law firm, right? We put our clients first. And I think what you're talking about really challenges us that if we really are putting our clients first, then our role as their legal advisor is also to be that trusted advisor where we can actually acknowledge that this is a very difficult, more nuanced situation than just saying you can never apologize, that there might be really important business reasons why the entity needs to issue the apology. And so you're doing your job, in my opinion, and being client-centered if you can have that frank conversation with your client and acknowledge both those things or that, like you said, that tension, that seems so important to me. Yeah. Awesome. Now that we've given the apology, anything else? Like, is it, it feels like sometimes that's not enough. I guess it's really that follow through that, that really comes next, right? We got to do what we say. So let me tell you a quick story about a, a Japanese company. It's called Recruit Holdings that had a scandal in the late 1980s that was so big that the prime minister and his entire cabinet had to resign. So this scandal was a kind of a classic shares for favors scandal in which the CEO offered members of the government as well as other private citizens shares in an unlisted subsidiary in exchange for seats on government boards and other kinds of things that he thought would advance his personal and corporate goals. Uh, It was revealed in the press, and the uproar was so great that the prime minister and his entire cabinet had to resign. The CEO, by the way, uh, went to jail uh, because what he did was illegal. So that that sort of checks the box on the accountability front, okay? And they were lucky in a way to be able to cabin off who was responsible for this. But then the company really did have to engage in all of the things that I've just said about trying to really recover lost trust. So from an acknowledgement of responsibility standpoint, you can still find the story of this 1980s scandal on their website and the steps that they took and in order to try to recover from it. Uh, They clearly took accountability for it. And the root cause problem that they ended up with was actually not so much a customer loss of confidence. It was that employees had lost confidence in the firm. Mm. So if you're in Japan, you know, it's at that point, the land of lifetime employment, and you're a company, and it turns out the CEO had also burdened them with a debt that was greater from a carrying cost standpoint than their annual profits. So they didn't have a lot of money to work with. And what they decided to focus on for their employees was being a good place to be from. Because employees, their kids were being bullied in the playgrounds because of their association with this scandal. And they said, okay, we have to do something to shore up what it's like to be an employee at Recruit Holdings. They did some very specific things. So if you're at Recruit, their performance appraisal happens twice a year, and you're expected to look both at the next six months and over the next three years as to where you see your career going and the skills that you want to cultivate And the job of the manager is to help give you projects that help you not just in the short term contribute to the company, but also contribute to your longer term personal skills development. They have a practice of giving major assignments to junior people in the firm to help them grow their skills. 
And then uh, if you're junior in the firm and you come up to a senior person and says, I've run across this problem, nine times out of 10, what they will say is, well, what do you think you should do? Right. So they keep pushing people to actually build their skills uh, and abilities. They have a tremendous culture of recognition of accomplishment. And so they have an award system, which is appropriate for a big corporation. And so if you're in sales or technology, administration, different kinds, uh, you can win an award. And if you win an award for being great at that, part of what you have to do is to go tell everyone who does your job what it was that you won the award for and how to do that thing themselves. Oh, I like that. So the end of this uh, is, you know, it's now a mark of respect and prestige to have this company on your resume. They do, they go even further. They actually give people a retirement bonus that starts after they've been there in the firm for six years. Uh, and then it's, it can be renewed. Uh, and so they start active conversations with people about what their next step might be and how financially what they would be you know, given in order to help them do that. And that's because their theory is that they want to be a place that's good to be work in and then good to leave. And they acknowledge the reality of the fact that people come in and out of organizations and really focus on this question about how can we be a good place to be from And I would think that in your line of work, that there are people for whom that also might be an attractive proposition. Yeah, for sure. I love that. And this has been so great. I think the way that your research really frames this idea of trust into something that's really tangible and and useful. The book, The Power of Trust, How Companies Build It, Lose It, and Regain It, is great. There's so many live examples and examples that we know that I just found fascinating. It was exciting to to kind of look at them from a new lens and, and remember the scandals and the things that companies had done. So I would encourage anyone that's listening to grab that book and check it out. And Sandra, thank you so much for being on with us today. Oh, it's entirely my pleasure. You're great to talk with. Uh, and, uh, and I love this audience. I'm so glad to be able to talk with you guys. So thanks. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced by Bailey Tiller and edited by Ryan Croft. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discussed here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Here are your first two steps. First, if you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free at lawyerist.com book. Looking for help beyond the book? Let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyerist.com community lab to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and not endorsed by the Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.